Shut up and sit down. I'm Dr. Corbin Weaver, an OB-GYN resident. I'm Dr. Katie Wyatt, and I'm one too. And I'm Dave Etler, their pod father. And, and we, we are, are the Vagabonds. Three friends venturing through the world of feminism and healthcare for women, babies, and people of all kinds. We don't give medical advice, and we don't speak for anyone other than ourselves. We're just recording conversations we'd be having in bars anyway. Uh, what am I supposed to say this week? <laughs> we're talking about... <laughs> As LG- always, we're right on the jump. <laughs> yep. We're talking about LGBTQ health with Dr. Katie and Bork. So, welcome. welcome. We're back. Uh, so, like I said, we have Dr. Katie and Bork with us. She is the co-director of the uh, University of Iowa LGBTQ Clinic. Is that right? Did I get all that right? You got it right. Pretty much. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Good. Yep. Well, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This is the first time we've had like a real legit like clinician who is like not like one of our friends or roommates on. Nice. We're very excited. You represent now the big time. You're the exactly. pinnacle. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I feel super humbled. Nice. You, sh- you should. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Do you just like want to tell us a little bit about yourself and like what your job consists of? Sure. Okay. Yeah, totally. Um, so... I am, like you said, the co-director of the University of Iowa Healthcare LGBTQ Clinic, um, and our clinic was started by myself and uh, Dr. Nicole Nisley, a general internal medicine doctor, um, and we opened our doors in October of 2012. This was the same exact time that Iowa River Landing had first opened their doors, you know, which is kind of our off-campus ambulatory um, uh, uh building um right out there in Corville and um so the inception of the clinic is kind of a great story I I had known of Dr. Nisley really more so than kind of known her she was um someone who lectured to me when I was a medical student here and I and I was just finishing up my family medicine residency here um and about to sort of join join faculty and there was a week called trans week that was put on by um, one of the, the the student groups through the University of Iowa that um, that was made up of trans people and kind of trans advocates. And so I went to one of their sessions. It was a panel about folks' experiences with um, the medical system. And Dr. Nisley happened to be there as well, kind of across the room. We both stood up and asked some questions kind of pertaining to our practices. And she came up to me afterwards and said, how would you like to start an LGBTQ clinic? And I was sort of like, yeah, that that's like a dream that I have, but I'm just about to graduate from residency and be faculty. You know, it just seemed a little bit mm-hmm. kind of overwhelming and yeah. unrealistic. Um, and I wasn't really aware of the force of nature that Nicole Nisley is. Um, <laughs> she was she was in a in a great polis- position at that time to to wield some of her political capital. Um, and and we, six months later, after many, many, many meetings um, from hospital attorneys and from administration and, and from really trying to get buy-in from our department chairs, not that it was an uphill battle. I mean, I think mm-hmm. everybody was really on board, but they were all sort of like, well, we're not real sure that you'll have a lot of patients. So will you still see people with sore throats? I mean, we, <laughs> we just needed right. to see patients on Tuesday nights. And we're like, We'll see anybody who comes. Mm-hmm. And so since that time, of course, we're going to fast forward here. 
uh, five and a half years. And we don't really see patients with sore throats. We see really LGBTQ folks each and every week on Tuesday nights and mm-hmm. are booked out right now about two to three months in advance. Yeah. So we've seen somewhere around 1,000 LGBTQ identified patients in that time. And I would say about 750 of them identify as transgender or gender nonconforming. Wow. Yeah. And so everyone sort of thinks like we are in Johnson County and there's you know, gay folks behind every rock and a trans person (laughs) behind every bush. And the reality is, though, that 80% of our patients come from outside of Mm -hmm. Johnson County. So they're driving to see us from rural Iowa, from, you know, the Quad Cities, from Waterloo. So from from lots of places um, where they really haven't been able to find affirming care Mm -hmm. in the sense of being able to connect them with what they need to treat their gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. So I love my job. It's like kind of amazing. <clears throat> and I, I tend to right now sort of have a population that's a little bit younger. I see kids that are 14 and above on okay. Tuesday nights, um, and we'll see adults as as well. Um, most of my clinical practice, if not almost all of it, <clears throat> is <coughs> excuse me, is um, limited really to just seeing LGBTQ folks. So I don't have tons of clinical time. I have a large Um, administrative appointment in addition with the University of Iowa Physicians Group. So really, I just see folks who identify as LGBTQ or they have a family member that does. So my practice is super sweet. Yeah. um, So when you you said, you know, Dr. Nisley approached you and that's kind of how you uh, started or got the ball rolling with the the clinic here. Is this... um, you know, an issue you had pursued throughout medical school, or I guess, how'd you get, for our listeners, you know, how'd you get involved in, you know, uh, pursuing this type of healthcare, I guess? Yeah. So, um, I identify as a lesbian. So that's, um, that, that was something that I came into medical school with. However, when I really, I mean, I would say that my, that my first year of med school was the first time that I was really kind of like out of the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so looking now and thinking about my, you know, 22 year old self being in this position when I was really still closeted and, you know, somewhat ashamed of, of who I was. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine and also equally awesome. Um, and so when I got to medical school for, for the first time, I was sort of, um, you know, introduced and or open to being in a position of privilege where you have the ability to advocate um, for other populations, especially Mm -hmm. marginalized folks. One of my very best friends in med school um, was super involved in AMSA, the American Mm -hmm. Medical Mm -hmm. Student Association. She was the president of AMSA, I believe, kind of during what would have been like her M4 year. Uh, So she graduated behind me. But but so kind of through that, and they have an LGBTQ kind of subcommittee as, you know, part of AMSA um, that I just sort of learned more and more about LGBTQ health and the fact that we didn't have a lot in our curriculum here at CCOM at the time. So um, I approached one of our amazing former um, community directors and uh, and she said, you know what, like, why don't we talk about maybe looking at the LGBTQ group that we have, which is more of a of a social group there. There was some real um, and in some ways warranted kind of fear of these students being outed. And, mm. and so it was very underground, if you would. And so I kind of felt like 
like maybe there was space to have something that was a little bit more visible and that we mm-hmm. may be able to to change some culture w- with with actually having you know some some faces and some names to be put onto this issue and so it was when I was a second year student that um, that I helped found the group called Medics or Med Iowa's Queer Students, which has since changed their mm-hmm. name to Equal Meds. Um, and so that was kind of my first foray would would be during med school where I really felt like it was important to kind of look at these gaps in our mm-hmm. curriculum and try to bring in either some selective options over lunch, but also have some some real kind of, you know, like standard part of the curriculum mm-hmm. education about LGBTQ health. And then, uh, and then I did some conferences. And then when I was a resident, I spent a, a month at Howard Brown Health Center, which is a federally qualified health center in Chicago that specifically serves LGBTQ folks. Mm. And I, you know, just saw tons and tons of trans care and tons, yeah. actually a lot of HIV care, and and mm-hmm. and felt like I was comfortable with it. Um, you know, like quick soapbox taking care of trans people is way, way, way easier than much of the medicine <laughs> that we do. Like yeah. we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're talking about medicines that we use already, like estradiol and spironolactone right. and testosterone. Yeah. And we know what the risks are and the benefits. And mm-hmm. we're just following labs, trying to get them into the normal range. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, but I think that it was what I needed just to kind of say like, for sure, you could do it. Yeah. Like, don't be afraid. And these are some people that you could kind of fall back on mm-hmm. if you had any mm-hmm. questions. So by the time that I was done with my residency, I mean, I, I felt really like I wanted to see trans people, but I had like an N of two. I mean, yeah. I had seen two yeah. trans patients in my mm-hmm. own practice. So, so was that rotation during residency or during med school? That was a rotation during residency. Okay. okay. Cool. Set up. So, and you didn't do a fellowship or anything in this, correct? No. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Right. So, yeah. so there, so there, um, so there is no like specific, right. um, LGBTQ like medicine Mm -hmm, fellowship Um, there is oh I forget what institution kind of has it but I think that there's like like an LGBTQ policy fellowship that is available Um, but really nothing that's there for medicine Mm -hmm. and honestly I like I said there um, I I, like I don't want to sell it short because I do feel like there's a lot that is really important that you know as a provider when you care for folks who identify as lesbian mm-hmm. or bisexual or 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 mm-hmm. gay or who have you know same-sex partners um, and who also may be transgender or gender non-conforming but I also feel like it's stuff that that all of us should graduate from right. medical school knowing and yeah. certainly from a primary care or an OBGYN residency definitely right and that's kind of why I asked that because I think that is like the assumption is that to do these like interesting niche parts of medicine that you didn't need to do a fellowship yeah. but like that's just not true like you can do what you want to do and just kind of do a rotation somewhere that has a high volume or just get into it and start taking patients and I think that's really cool and I yeah. think people don't really understand that about like family medicine especially but just like medicine in general is really open to that kind of stuff which is cool yes I would agree with that wholeheartedly even within my, um, like the main place that I practice when I'm not at IRL on Tuesday nights. So I'm at one of our offsite clinics on Scott Boulevard, just on the mm-hmm. east side of Iowa City. And, and, and each of us in my practice, you know, which is like six physicians and a PA, we all kind of have those things that, mm-hmm. that, that we're good at and that we like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my colleagues, she has tons of refugee patients mm-hmm. from the Congo and she loves it and has really kind of like built her career 
upon that. Mm -hmm. She didn't do anything special to have that. She has an interest in it. She learned as much as she could about it and feels like she really, you know, tries to go out and market and do things in the community to attract that Mm -hmm. population to her. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. Like, you know, these primary care specialties are just set up for us to be able to do stuff like that. Right. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I want to hear more about how you said it was you said if I remember correctly, uh, that this medicine is actually not as hard as you might, as you might think. Yep. Um, and I've heard this before. So, I mean, you're just applying, it sounds to me like you're just applying basic principles of medicine to a different population that might need something additional from their provider that they just weren't getting from traditional, uh, practitioners. Yeah, and I'm happy to to sort of like even kind of walk through it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so, so yes. So let's talk about some like transmasculine people, right? Or should we mm-hmm. define like just what we talk about when we talk about trans? Yep. Okay. So, so, so folks who are on kind of the transmasculine end of the spectrum are going to have a sex assigned at birth female, um, and then their gender identity is incongruent with their assigned sex at birth, and so they identify you know, as potentially male if they are more binary or they might identify as somewhere kind of more masculine of center if maybe they're non-binary. And then non-binary being an umbrella term and within that we could have lots of terms, gender mm-hmm. queer, gender fluid, mm-hmm. agender, whatever that it might be. But if this person has gender dysphoria with a lot of their female secondary sex characteristics and they feel like to treat that gender dysphoria, it would be better if they had more masculine secondary sex characteristics than we would potentially and probably put them on testosterone. Um, and putting someone on testosterone is is going to do things that we would expect testosterone to do. So, you know, they will develop terminal uh, hairs on their face and their chest and more, you know, body hair on their arms and their legs and potentially on their trunk. Um, they will uh, have enlargement of their clitoris. Their vocal cords will thicken and their voice will get deeper. They will stop having periods relatively quickly. Um, They will be able to put on muscle mass easier than they otherwise would have. And similarly, when we look at their lab levels, we know that when you have extra testosterone that you have, you know, erythropoiesis. So your hemoglobin and hematocrit is going to increase. So we're going to check that and make sure that it doesn't get too out of the male range. It's probably going to be out of the female range. They're no longer having menses Mm -hmm. and now they have erythropoiesis. We just want to make sure it's not too high. We know that that their testosterone levels are going to go up and their estradiol levels just from negative feedback will go down. We just want to check those and make sure that they're in the normal male range for somebody their age. Um, So really, the medicine part of it is not all that hard. Mm-hmm. We're drawing labs and we're adjusting medications and titrating kind of based on those lab tests. We're making sure that they're not having any side effects. But I think that sometimes what what is somewhat challenging is that is that there's there's sort of all of these other parts that that you want to kind of make sure kind of fit before you necessarily move forward. Um, and part of that is that you know that. At least in our practice, we really like for the patient to have a visit, at least one visit with with a mental health provider to confirm that diagnosis of gender dysphoria and to say that they feel like that patient can give informed consent, that there's no red flags. If they have any comorbid medical and mental health conditions, that they're well controlled. 
Um, and so, you know, there's just some coordinating back and forth that that needs to happen, which I think sometimes is a bit of a barrier for some providers mm-hmm. is that they feel like, oh, goodness, like, you know, what if I make this decision and I put them on hormones and then they regret it? And, you know, mm-hmm. so what because we live in a somewhat litigious mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. Um, and and so we sort of jump to that and worry about it testosterone and estradiol to treat gender dysphoria is not approved by the FDA. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of medicines that we use that are not approved yeah. by the FDA. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that that sometimes people feel like that is a bit of a barrier mm-hmm. um, just to to their own willingness to prescribe it. And then, of course, there's also just that that when we're treating a marginalized population, that with it just comes some issues. And so, you know, one is insurance coverage either they may be underinsured or they may have an insurance coverage that doesn't necessarily pay for this medicine or these procedures and so you got to fill out prior us and do this paperwork and you know dog this and that to really mm-hmm. follow through with it and maybe this patient has you know like unstable housing and mm-hmm. maybe they have mm-hmm. like unemployment because even though we have non-discrimination laws in the state I can give you a dime a dozen stories of my patients who really haven't been able to maintain jobs likely because of their gender identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so the actual medicine of it, I feel like is really easy, but I think that it's everything that surrounds it that can make it somewhat, um, you know, just, just look, look and seem a little bit more difficult than first glance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, something we talk about on this podcast a lot is like how much easier our lives would be if people would just listen to women you know like what they tell you but yeah it sounds like a similar thing where like your job would be a lot easier if people would just listen to these patients and just like accept that what they're saying is how they feel and that they're not lying just a lie you know yeah um but yeah so how is the insurance coverage like how is that going and how has it changed so um the the insurance coverage is i would say way better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. In general, I tell almost every one of my patients that we're not going to have trouble getting their visit covered, getting most of their labs covered, or getting their medications covered. You know, Mm -hmm. we're seeing more and more high deductible plans, though, which means that it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what you have. You're going to pay out of pocket for $5,000, and that just sucks. Mm -hmm. But but for, for the most part, you know, even for the medications, depending on which one. So if someone's on testosterone, if they're willing to do injections, it's almost always covered. If they have like a needle phobia Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh my gosh, like they really could use a gel or a patch and insurance is often like, I'm so sorry, that's too bad. Mm -hmm. Like we won't cover that. We'll only cover the injections. Mm -hmm. And so if they're on estradiol, those pills are usually covered. Even the patches tend to be covered there. Mm -hmm. Injections covered for the most part, but not a hundred percent across the board. Um, but that's like, that's wonderful. Like that is really awesome. And then when we move on to the surgical procedures, that's where it's definitely, right. it depends on your employer. Mm-hmm. Right now, if you have Medicaid in the state of Iowa, there's no coverage for any types of transition related surgeries. There is um, a legal case that will hopefully go in front of a judge to challenge that. There mm-hmm. are many states where that's not the case and where it is covered. Mm-hmm. So we're hopeful, um, but... Yeah. Right now, no coverage for folks with Medicaid. One really, really great thing that I'm so proud of, and that that um, that I don't know that that tons of people know, but President Harold, when he came to the university, he was integral in in changing some of 
our health insurance plans for faculty, staff, and students. Mm. And so as of August of last year, <clears throat> if you're a faculty, staff, or student at any of the Regent universities, you have surgical coverage for, trans for transgender-related surgeries. Awesome. So that means top surgery, that means bottom surgery. Mm -hmm. um, does not, unfortunately, mean facial feminization surgery, okay. but I mean, a wonderful, wonderful thing that that our plastic surgeon would tell you that has really increased his volume. He's wow. probably doing like two male chest reconstructions every week wow. since mm -hmm. since August. So it's been it's been awesome, and we're actively looking at bringing some more surgical procedures here to the University of Iowa. Mm -hmm. So like vaginoplasty being the big one. Yeah, yeah. Um, where I think that we can get there we we just need to put in place mm -hmm. some of the training um and then put in place some of the marketing but we have mm -hmm. surgeons who are really interested in it yeah so, yeah that's awesome so right now we do um orchiectomies with uh dr brad erickson and mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. urology dr tom lawrence does um male chest reconstruction or breast augmentation and then the OBGYN department kind of across the board but dr jenny ryan is who mm -hmm. we usually work with mm -hmm. and then um uh, Elizabeth Graff, who is a PA, yeah. that they really help um, kind of negotiate some of those uh, hysterectomies and oophorectomies mm -hmm. for our for our trans men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I was gonna ask this a little bit earlier, but what is the like closest clinic of like the type we have here? Like, how far are patients, you know, like having to come from kind of a radius? So there is um, a provider in Des Moines okay. who okay. does a lot of trans care and that his mm -hmm. name is Dr. Joe Freund he's actually one of the guys who I met when I was in med school and he came and gave a lot of lectures to CCOM for a number of years until I was at the point in my <laughs> career that I could actually lecture to medical students um, and so he sees a number of trans patients kind of from that part of the state um, and then we had worked with uh one of the Unity Point clinics from Cedar Falls, and they had a number of their team kind of come down and shadow mm -hmm. us. And so they've started to see trans patients as well. Um, student health here sees transgender mm -hmm. patients. Mm -hmm. And we just, um, just last week, I think, or two weeks ago, had some people from the from Iowa State, from their student mm -hmm. health um, clinic come down and shadow. They're right now, I think, continuing hormones, but not not necessarily initiating okay. them. So okay. there are kind of scattered throughout the mm -hmm. state, some providers who will do hormones. Mm -hmm. You know, we are we are probably the only institution that kind of has this real right. comprehensive mm -hmm. team. Um, so even though we're not in the same location at, at the exact same time, I mean, I, I think that our that our team is fairly multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, we, of course, have myself and Dr. Nisley. We have a PharmD who is integral to our team awesome. in terms of being yeah. there on Tuesday nights yeah. and talking to patients and also knowing how to navigate the insurance system. Mm -hmm. She has her own prep clinic, which is like super, super sweet. So mm -hmm. yeah. um, HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it runs on protocols and a collaborative practice agreement where you can go and see her and do self-swabs. So you swab your own throat. You grab your own rectal swab you get a urine test they draw blood we do all the sti panel and she can renew your truvada for three months that's awesome um and and then we have dr katie larson Odie, who's a pediatric endocrinologist who's at the lgbtq clinic one time per month and she also sees a number of trans kids in her own practice and uh and so she sees all those 
kind of 13 and younger mm-hmm. transgender and gender non-conforming kids and puts them on puberty blockers mm-hmm. and she may be the only one in the state that does that yeah. and she is booked out yeah I'm um sure. peter daniolis is with child psychiatry and we mm-hmm. really rely upon him and then some of those surgical subspecialties mm-hmm. that i've talked about so we have a real comprehensive team that i think most other places don't have yeah yeah that's great can we talk a little bit about the the uh the your pediatric patients and 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 how that works i know it's a um in some circles it's a controversial subject um those puberty blockers and and how those work and how they're best used yep so and clearly dr larsonody would be able to talk a little bit more about the specifics of it but in um in general we know that there are lots of kids you know and so we're talking about like little kids so toddler school age kids and maybe their gender is non-conforming which mm-hmm. just means that it doesn't quite match what you would expect for someone with that sex assigned at birth mm-hmm. and so we would call those kids like tomboys um you know or or we would see those little boys who like to put on their mom's high heels and dresses and 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 sort of feel like those kids are gender non-conforming mm-hmm. okay and that's not all that uncommon right right and mm-hmm. so a a small subset of those kids will have gender dysphoria mm-hmm. where they not only have the behaviors and the friends and the and the you know like play things and playmates that are kind of atypical for kids with their sex assigned at birth, but they may also really feel and be able to even start expressing that their gender doesn't align with what that is. And so they may be, you know, start talking about their body parts or they may start really asserting that their gender is is such. Um, and, and, and so that's less common. And, but it, it's really not until puberty. So it's really kind of a diagnostic kind of, you know, fork in the road there that when a child goes through puberty and kind of has that flood of hormones and their body actually does start changing a little bit. So Tanner stage two is what mm-hmm. we talked about. So that's right when you start to develop breast buds, if your sex assigned at birth female or your, you know, testicles start to get somewhat enlarged if your sex assigned at birth male, that, that if that dysphoria becomes more pronounced at that point in time, what happens, you know, is of course, like everybody's body's kind of the same when you're seven and eight, but then right. as you go through puberty, all of a sudden things do become much different. And at that point in time, some of these kids that have that gender dysphoria beforehand, some of them just feel like stuff just kind of makes sense and it aligns. And mm-hmm. maybe all of a sudden they felt like, you know what, like I really, like I want to be a boy because boys get to do such cool things, right? Mm-hmm. Like boys get to like play in the NFL. Yeah. They get to play in the NBA. Like boys get to do awesome things. Like they get to be president of this country. Like yeah. who wouldn't want to be a boy? But actually I feel like it's just that I want to be a boy, but I am a girl. Yeah. And yeah. then there's kids who feel like, no, 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 I am a boy. Right. Like this isn't about wanting. This is about like who I am. Mm. And now my body is starting to betray me and change in ways that is so foreign to how I actually feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so once that child has sort of gone through puberty <laughs> and if that's still the case, then we feel like with really high likelihood that adolescent is very likely to identify as trans as an adult. Mm-hmm. And so it's at that point in time that we can um at least in our case that we work with a pediatric endocrinologist, but in some cases it may just be a general pediatrician, but put them on something called puberty blockers. Mm. And, and essentially that's just a pause button. We just pause puberty and nothing happens one way or the other. 
if you take it away, then they would progress through puberty as they otherwise would. And, and you know, WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, their guidelines recommend sometime around the age of 16 that you would then start cross-sex hormones. If the child still feels like that's appropriate, if they give assent, and then if the parents give consent for it, then mm-hmm. that's when you would do that. So this all has to be done with parents' consent. There, There is no puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones without that at this stage in the game, parents and or legal guardians. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, there definitely is some controversy. We have, I, I have a number of patients who have socially transitioned before puberty. So, and, and this has been done, you know, obviously with parents feeling like this was the safest, best thing for their kids. Mm-hmm. And also knowing that potentially maybe their kid will change their mind, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, I feel like if we lived in, in a world that wasn't so gendered, then who cares? It's right. just that we live in this world where all of a sudden you go to school one day as Sally mm-hmm. and then for three years as Tony and then you'd go back to Sally and that that could be hard. Right. But I think yeah. that, that we really tried to make sure that parents understand that before moving forward. Mm-hmm. And many, many of, of them have said, this was my kid and and they were so profoundly unhappy and all of a sudden I let them cut their hair and wear cargo shorts and they're a <laughs> new child and yeah. I made the right decision for mm-hmm. them at that time and we'll see what mm-hmm. happens when they you right. know become 12 years old right. and when they start to go through puberty. Yeah. I feel like in some ways so much progress has been made in this in this area. Like I know that in my um, kids school there are um gender non-conforming children, children who identify publicly as gender non-conforming. This was not a thing when I was Mm -hmm. in junior high school. That never happened. If it did happen, it was a really big problem. Um, Or when I was in school. I mean, I mean, all I can speak to is like, you know, a regrettable <laughs> 38 years ago but you <laughs> but uh you know the the the, the point is that uh, i mean they're the, you know they have a, a gay a, a glow club gay and lesbian uh, or whatever, or whatever club. Oh, that's awesome um, <laughs> that's like and, the most middle school thing ever and uh, these days are the coolest i know <laughs> i know well okay so and, and so i want to be cautious here you know we we do live in johnson county where where uh yeah. you know very liberal part of the one of the liberal parts of the state. Yeah. Um, so it's not like this everywhere. I certainly right. don't want yeah. to yeah. imply that, but um, the fact that this exists to me is like, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I, I would also say too, that I've been, I'm, so let me start by just saying that, that my sample size is really biased, right? right? Because mm-hmm. like, I only see patients who come to see me because their parents bring them. Right. So like at baseline, they are kind of in a supportive environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for everyone, you know, gender nonconforming or LGBTQ in general kid who comes to see me, there's probably, you know, more than that. Mm-hmm. Who just don't because right. their parents are not supportive or um, whatever may be the case. But but I would say that that I am more often pleasantly surprised than I am kind of outraged by the experiences mm-hmm. that these kids have at school, even in small town Iowa. That's good. That 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 you know, like their administrators are super on board, mm-hmm. and they're going to bathrooms where they feel really safe, and maybe mm-hmm. they're playing yeah. on sports teams. So I mean, I do think that there's there's for sure a shift 
mm-hmm. in the state of Iowa at least because that's kind of my population and I know yeah. it's not that way everywhere clearly yeah. clearly I'm sorry about uh you know like you going close yeah. to North Carolina there but yeah. um yeah. but I would agree that that and and you know and then it kind of begs just that whole question right like so why didn't we see this before was it just because you know like it wasn't safe enough and mm-hmm. there wasn't you know publicity about it because clearly there's there's been transgender and gender non non-conforming people forever right yeah um across all court cultures and, yes yeah. mm-hmm. yes and 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 so but now it does seem like people feel like <clears throat> like they're in a position where they can actually be more true to their to their authentic selves even at young ages yeah mm-hmm. that's awesome that like yeah. gives me hope for the world <laughs> oh for sure yeah I, yeah I say all the time that like I have days where I have very little hope mm-hmm. for the world and I go to clinic on Tuesday nights and I leave clinic thinking like maybe we're gonna be okay yeah, that's awesome. yeah. like I just sat in clinic with a 15 year old and the 15 year old parents who are trying so hard just mm-hmm. to love their child yeah. Yeah. and like crying and like grieving the loss of what they thought was the future mm-hmm. for their child and like you know like falling over and misstepping on pronouns mm-hmm. and 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 names but catching themselves and apologizing and just saying like at the end of the day like i love you and mm-hmm. i want you to be who you are right and oh like come yeah. on like yeah. it is hard not to sort of feel like i like, know gonna, <laughs> i'm getting all worked up over here. Okay. i know yeah <laughs> yeah it's it awesome yeah it is awesome i think still though it's i mean it's it, it is still imperfect even in right. this area i mean i i know that um going to try to so so for instance i was speaking with um a friend of my kids um who is uh, uh gender non-conforming and i slipped up and called this person their old name and i immediately said oh you know i'm actually one of my kids was like dad <laughs> so i you know immediately apologized and i said that must you know that must uh, does that make you angry when people do that and the person said you know it doesn't um but it on occasion people use it mm. um especially mm-hmm. kids use yeah. it so it's 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 imperfect but oh yeah yeah um it's i don't know i just like it Yay. yeah 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 hey, kids yeah it's i mean obviously um yeah kids the uh a lot of kids you know they'll still go through a lot of like really hard times i think also just you know the idea of like probably wondering who you are and like trying to figure that out is really hard because uh i mean you have to uh, people who aren't like uh don't have gender dysphoria (laughs) figure it out for them you know but yeah but people do but uh but i'd like to believe that you know kids who have you know good experiences even in rural Iowa it's because you know it's really hard to hate someone you know you know it's really hard to look a kid in the eye and be like you're wrong you have to go into that other bathroom (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that it's because of that but I don't know yeah I don't know yeah um so another thing that we talk about on the show a lot is like the political activism and our like chosen profession so is that something that you're involved with at all like lobbying or talking to legislature yeah so i have um uh tried to do my fair bit about it um mm-hmm. so one of the things that we tried was the iowa board of medicine and mm-hmm. we, so so here's here's kind of how i think it all shook out was there was an attempt to potentially pass some sort of legislation which 
would outlaw conversion therapy mm. for minors. Okay. And so this mainly centers around sexual orientation. Right. Um, and so it's kind of, uh, and, and, and some of the challenging things is, of course, it's kind of directed at a lot of religious institutions because right. there's not a lot of medical <laughs> providers who are out there doing it. Right. So this is, a, just to be clear, this is a uh, an attempt to um, change someone's uh, sexuality yeah. or sexual identity Correct. Um, to sort of convert them from, you know, yeah. gay to not gay. Right. Yeah. So so sexual sexual orientation (laughs) change efforts. And so, I mean, and I think that these can be a number of things, Mm -hmm. you know, as benign as, you know, like talk therapy and cognitive behavioral Mm -hmm. therapy and then as malignant as, you know, like reports of shock therapy and things like that. And and um, and 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 so um, so I think that it started with the legislature and they didn't get a lot of, um, you know, make a lot of headway. And then it kind of moved mm-hmm. towards kind of talking about if the Iowa Board of Medicine would make some sort of statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, and that actually never gained tons of traction either because the Board of Medicine sort of felt like we don't have this problem. Like we yeah. we, we oversee physicians and no, there's no physician that's doing this. Um, and mm-hmm, and right. even if they did make some sort of statement, you know, it it really couldn't reach into the organizations that probably needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we work really closely with a super awesome, awesome group. There's um, a, a lawyer and professor in the College of Law named Lynn Sandler, and he is just a gem of a guy. <laughs> he has built his career on um, advocating for the rights of marginalized folks he's done a lot of hiv work he's done tons and tons with disabilities and shortly after the clinic started nicole went to him because she was one of his friends and and kind of pitched the idea of of him potentially helping with some of this in whatever Mm -hmm. capacity he felt he had and he thought about it for a while and came back to us and said that he felt like he could maybe dedicate some energy and effort to this and so working with law students and legal Mm -hmm. interns has been amazing so they have created the like most awesome guide to changing your legal identity documents oh, in the state awesome. of, of Iowa. It has been shared and used like around the whole world uh-huh. probably. It's great. It's this roadmap where it essentially says step one, go get your birth certificate. This is the link and how to do it. This uh-huh. is how much it's going to cost. Step two, you know, go get your name changed. It's going to cost this much. This is how you're going to go do that. Yeah. This is how you get your passport changed and really walks you through it. And it is and an invaluable document that Seriously. they that that they're on i think like their fifth or sixth revision because yeah. they updated every six months that's um, awesome and they have the rainbow law clinic which will kind of help people navigate that mm-hmm. um so they they have been really wonderful in putting out some kind of surveys just to to kind of get what the current climate is for trans folks which then of course is used in legal arguments and kind of pointed as as evidence of Mm -hmm. for for all sorts of things um and then i had kind of talked about that that case that's going to be seen um before Mm -hmm. a judge about the iowa medicaid ruling Mm -hmm. so um dr nisley and i both in those kind of contexts really try to kind of share our voice in the stories of our patients and advocate on their behalf to do a lot in terms of really feeling like trans people one aren't discriminated against mm-hmm. in day-to-day life in terms of public accommodations um but but also that we can further the amount of coverage that they can get through insurance companies right. yeah mm-hmm. 
As someone who recently changed her name, I wish there was like that kind of guide just for like all government and like change my residency status. Yes. Like I wish there was just a guide for any governmental thing that you have to exactly. do. Exactly. Oh my gosh. So many hoops. Oh, one last thing, unless you had anything else, was I was just gonna ask for just like a brief like um little like primer on like as a provider, like what's the best way to be like the most inclusive that we can be? Like what's like one thing that we should take just like for people who are listening to who like interact with anyone on a day to day basis? Oh, you're really gonna make it hard for me to give you just one. I know, it's really hard. <laughs> okay, so so we focused, you know, tons on trans patients and I think that we're probably gonna stick there, but know that I could come back and talk a lot about like my LGBT Yeah brethren who we haven't really focused on here so um but just with trans patients i feel like um like one of the biggest ones for me is just like let's all put on a reasonable person hat Mm -hmm. right so if we walk through the world especially if we walk through the world as medical providers Mm -hmm. so nurses clerks residents physicians app's if we walk through the world as reasonable persons and we see a person who doesn't necessarily look like they match what you would expect for someone of that sex listed on their medical record, then let's be a reasonable person and think like, I'm gonna really ask that patient what they would like to be called and what their pronouns are. And I'm gonna preface that by saying, hey, my name's Katie and I like to use pronouns she, her, and hers. What's your name and what pronouns do you like to use? And I think just, just like, putting it out there, knowing that maybe a couple times you're going to have somebody look at you kind of like you have two heads and say, mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about, Mike? And and I I don't know, maybe he, like he, him, like, what do you mean what pronouns? Mm-hmm. But for every time that that happens, I think that you're going to open the door for so many people who are so afraid to enter this medical world because they have either experienced discrimination mm-hmm. or they know mm-hmm. someone who did that they're going to feel at ease all at once and say like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, like maybe this place is a little safe for me. Mm-hmm. And I can actually feel like I can, I can talk honestly with my provider and then get the care that they really need and mm-hmm. deserve. Yeah. Yeah. That's Fantastic. awesome. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much for uh, coming to visit with us today. I wish yeah, we you're could, welcome. This was wish awesome. We could talk more. Yeah. Well, maybe we can in the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would love it. I love what you guys are doing. I'm super stoked that you're going to do it from your respective places. Yeah, Good for you guys. Too. Yeah. Do you guys have fallopian files? Uh, I do have. Oh, I okay. This week on the plane, coming back from Seattle, I watched the post. Oh, the movie. The movie. It was so good. I didn't. I thought it was going to be a little bit boring, but it was actually really good. It's with um, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. America's Uncle Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's actually really good. This I. It was a storyline that I did like not even realize. It's about the Washington Post and like um, all of these. Uh, I guess the. I don't know if it's like called the McNamara study um, where they were basically studying Vietnam for years since um, Kennedy basically. And um, they had known years and years in advance that we are going to lose Vietnam and that all these people are going to, all these Americans were going to die. And plus all these Vietnam pe- Vietnamese people were going to die. And, um, and how that was this huge governmental cover up mm-hmm. and huh. um, this, uh, this, this, 
woman, she had just taken over the post from her husband who um, who had committed suicide. And basically all the men around her were saying, like, you're not even supposed to be here. Like, um, you know, this wasn't your job. And like, let the men make the decisions. And she was the one who ultimately had to make the decision whether to like publish these classified mm-hmm. documents or not. And it's really good. I Crazy. highly recommend it. Hmm. <laughs> do you want to do yours? Yeah. I mean, that sounds like it hits a little bit too close to home. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. Mine, yeah. mine does as well in a really scary way. I've been watching The Handmaid's Tale. Oh. Oh, Tell yeah. me that you guys have like done an episode I, on The Handmaid's no, Tale. No, I haven't watched yeah. it. I've read it, but haven't watched it. I'm going to oh. let. Okay. So when we do, if we, when we do an episode, I'm going to ask Christine to take the mic, my wife oh, to take yeah. the mic. Because oh, she watches yeah. this. I have not watched that. it. She and I won't watch it because it's too terrifying. I know to that's why I haven't watched it either. Yeah, it's I mean bad. I've read the book a couple times, but I'm yeah. like afraid of watching the show. But I can hear her in the TV room, <laughs> fucking sobbing. Yeah, I that I mean that's I like what yeah. would, I would uh, do. I know. Yeah, it's 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 terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying and horrifying. Um, way too close to yeah. home. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I. You know, I mean, you like you got to let your mind go there to right. to to sort of feel it. But but, you know, like one thing that they do is it's set in present day, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. so they do these little mini flashbacks of of sort of, you know, like with like songs that we all know. Right. And like, like they make a point that that, you know, it's present day. Everyone has an iPhone mm-hmm. and and they just kind of insert in there how these little things chipped away mm-hmm. right like all of yeah. a sudden like men had to sign for women's birth control prescriptions Ugh. and you know and like you yeah. could only get birth control if you had a husband but not if you were single you know and 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 so it just yeah. makes you think like oh oh gosh like this was how it, this was you know right. how the fictional world of gilead but still like right this, these are the things this is mm-hmm. how it could happen mm-hmm. yeah well this is like after the election in 2016 right yeah Yeah. (laughs) i was like crying and someone a male friend said to me like i don't know why like this is such a big deal and i'm like because this is literally my job like this will determine like the future of my career like and it's those little things that like change um based on who's in power besides the law that they just passed in iowa which we talked about a couple episodes ago but this new trump administration gag oh rule my God. about referring people to abortions i, I mean that's for us you know like that's you're compromising our it's like literally medical, a gag like you know ethics. our jobs yeah yeah like you're telling us we can't say something oh yeah that is yeah. medically an appropriate thing to refer someone on to and it's right totally like yeah. all of the religion religious freedom bills and all yeah. that i mean mm-hmm. those those it is it's a hop skip and a jump from being able to say oh i as a provider i actually don't care for pete like i don't take care of people medically who identify as gay or right, lesbian right what do you do if you live in you know like little tiny rural town yeah. and that is the doctor right. now all of a sudden you you can't go to the doctor yeah. you know i mean so this isn't like these are these are these these decisions clearly have real world yeah. application for us as physicians yeah you know? yeah Ugh, that was a good one. <laughs> we Sorry. definitely need to do an episode. You do. It uh, feels like we do. <laughs> mine is a bit lighter. So mine is like 
small town or like your town like newsletter so one of my friends uh mm-hmm. just got me hooked up with like the columbia newsletter it's called cola today which also side note cola is the nickname for columbia it's also called the soda city which is just like my favorite thing about it so far <laughs> and <laughs> although i'm gonna have to get used to saying soda instead of pop yeah, but no doubt anyways but it's cola today and it like it's just adorable like every morning at 6 a.m you get this email that tells you like everything that's going on and like what the library's doing and like what breweries are like releasing their new beer and it's so fun i love it i'm like super excited to like go back and like start that sounds doing fantastic stuff. for somebody who's moving there. i know I mean, yeah, it's perfect. perfect plus like when you're a resident you have like nothing to do and then like you randomly have like done you're done with your notes at 7 p.m you're like oh i could do something and then you just like pull up your email and just be like Oh, there's this happening, and I can go do it. Yeah, Perfect. yeah, it's awesome. Though you may also choose to sleep. Yeah, I mean, if I like get a second win somehow, <laughs> stay in and watch Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so much Netflix, guys. I do not have one this week. That's okay. That's okay. Oh, awkward silence. Oh, no. well, I don't. You sounded you like can, you're gonna finish. You that. See, yeah. You no, I'm sorry. I, I right. truly don't have any nothing to uh, to say. That's, That's okay. okay. All right. Well. Thank you so much. Last episode recording together. Yeah, from now on we'll be like uh, separated. We still haven't entirely worked out the technology behind that, but we will. Yeah, it's gonna be fine. But yeah, we've got we've got essentially we've got two weeks to figure (laughs) that out. It's fine. It's It's fine. Everything's fine. fine. I trust you guys will do it. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks again, Doctor. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Katie, for coming. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Bye. Bye.